You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, you Добро пожаловать в Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven. Hello and welcome back to the show. You are listening to The Voice on the radio and this is Dashan. I hope everyone is doing well. Today we have an episode that is very dear to my heart because it is about philosophy, especially ancient philosophy and the philosophy that Plato invents. Plato invents philosophy via his beloved teacher Socrates and I often find it very difficult to explain to my friends and family what philosophy is. So I consider this episode as an attempt to describe what is philosophy or what does it mean to do philosophy via the character of Socrates. And the image he will use is midwifery, the act of delivering babies. You might find this idea of mental pregnancy rather strange. And I must say, you're right. Um, philosophy is a very strange activity. That is why it is so elusive to define and quite questionable in terms of who is good and who is bad in doing philosophy. That is why philosophers have always been very self-conscious about the nature of their project and have endless debates about what is it that they do. But I hope if you listen to this week's episode, you will see that there is really nothing that strange about philosophy. It is simply having a conversation about something, try to find out what do we mean when we say certain things, what do we actually believe, and how much we can defend what we believe and communicate our ideas to other, others, or to use Socrates' words, to know yourself. Then we can see philosophy happening everywhere, all the time, between friends, families and lovers, when they are having some intimate moment of communication, when they are trying to express what is dear to their heart and make themselves understood. Plato's dialogues are often imitations of those moments, and it can certainly be used as model for whoever want to have a good conversation with someone else, or even with oneself, or even talking in this episode, or you listening to this episode. It is a form of dialogue in itself. And this appreciation for dialogue, the importance of dialogue that Plato emphasizes over and over again, would be central to our understanding of philosophy and Socratic method as midwifery into this episode. And now I'll leave you uh, with the music for today. The song is called The Other Stranger by Doxa Sinestra. Excuse me, but my name is Williams. Okay, you said you wanted to talk. Let's Safety. We want to return. 
Mafia. We are in deep trouble. Maybe these guys are bluffing, but maybe they're not. That's what you don't know. That's what you don't know. Signal to call the station. What for? Just to let them know. Know what? Give it a bit longer. Welcome back. The song you just listened to is "The Other Stranger" by Doxa Sinestra, and、uh, we will let our guest today, Nicola, to explain to us why he chose this song.、Um, hi, Dashan.、Uh, thanks for your invitation. Yeah, I I chose this song because of the title of the song, "The Other Stranger," and the name of the band, the Doxa Doxa Sinestra,、uh, because Doxa in、uh, ancient Greek means opinion or fame, and is a central concept in. Plato's philosophy. So, since our theme today will be Plato, I, th- I thought it was appropriate to choose such a band. Great, indeed. Our topic is Plato today, specifically about Plato's dialogue Theaetetus, and more specifically about this character called Socrates. So, if one has to pinpoint the moment when philosophy begins its life in ancient Greece. Our safe choice is to say it begins with Plato, and Plato invents philosophy not by writing in the first-person narrative of what he thinks, but by writing dialogues, and the majority of which is about one historical figure from Athens who was famous for his quirky behaviors and his trial during his lifetime, and he is made famous and immortal in the writings of his student. This person is, of course, Socrates. Socrates himself did not leave any writing. Most things we know of him, fictionally or factually, come from Xenophon and Plato, his two students. We know for a fact that he was tried with the charge of impiety and corrupting the young, and was convicted and died in 399 BC. Plato was around 28 years of age when he witnessed this tragedy. And he spent his whole life writing dialogues and inventing the character we now know as Socrates. So today we will be talking about the portrait of Socrates that Plato paints in his dialogue Theaetetus, and especially the self-identification of Socrates as a midwife. And I have the pleasure to talk about it with Nicola, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Philosophy in Leuven, and I have. Been taking his classes on Plato for the last two years. Nicola, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dashan. Let's begin with a general question about Plato, because I have been always wondering why Plato decides to write philosophy in the form of dialogue. I know probably we do not know enough to say anything definite about it, but to the best of your knowledge, why why do Plato write dialogues? Well,、um, it's a very good question, and、uh, I think here、uh, we can provide、um, an answer in terms of、uh, the, the culture in which Plato was、uh, participating. And in this culture, the dialogues were a, a type of writing. It was a, a specific genre of writing. It's not、uh, completely exceptional that Plato、uh, wrote that type of things. 
other people's road dialogues. But I think there is a deeper uh, philosophical reason for that. And the, this reason has to do with how Plato conceives knowledge and thinking. Nowadays, we, we tend to think that knowledge is um, uh, expressed in propositions or judgments. For instance, we would say the structure of water is H2O or her earth is turning around the sun. Mm-hmm. Well, for Plato, this is not uh, the form that knowledge has. For him, what knowledge is, is the process of questioning and answering that leads to these judgments or proposition. So knowledge is intrinsically a dialogue mm. that the soul has. And for that reason, because knowledge is not simply a proposition or a judgment, but a process, a dialogical process, then I think uh, uh, Plato needs to write dialogue and not treatises or aphorism because he needs to show us and to uh, present us the process of questioning and answering that leads to uh, judgments and proposition. I see. Okay, great. Okay, so let's let's look at how he actually does that um, by focusing on the dialogue Theatetus. Theatetus was written around 369 BC, that is 30 years after Socrates' death. It is a dialogue mainly between Socrates and Theatetus on the question of what is knowledge, so fitting to our uh, topic today. And the dialogue ends with failing to reach a satisfying definition of knowledge. And then uh, in the dialogue, Socrates needs to go to the court to answer the indiction against him. So the fictional dialogue uh, takes place around the same day as the historical trial of Socrates. And uh, our focus is the passage about Socrates being a midwife. And that takes place early in the dialogue. Theatetus, after giving some simple answers to the question of what is knowledge, is unable to go further and feels painfully stuck, yet could not stop thinking about the question either, which is, I would say, quite common to mine or many other people's experience in doing philosophy, that we want to know something, we want to uh, unsolve a puzzle, uh, but we feel stuck, yet the, the problem still lingers uh, in our mind. And uh, to this experience, Socrates replies, quote, these are the pains of labor, dear Theatetus. It is because you're not barren, but pregnant. Okay, so this way, Socrates sets the stage for a comparison between himself and a midwife, and mental pregnancy and a physical pregnancy. This kind of analogy, I think, is still present in modern English. For example, we say we conceive an idea or we have a brain children. So the idea is we still use this analogy to talk about how ideas come about in our mind. And it is probably Plato who begins this line of imageries. So if physical pregnancy needs a midwife, the analogy goes that mental pregnancy also needs some kind of midwife. Then Socrates starts to describe the art of midwifery in order to compare them to his own craft. So he says three things first. He says midwives themselves are all past childbearing age. So they have had the experience of giving birth, but unable to do so now. Secondly, 
the midwives are better at judging if someone else is pregnant. Thirdly, they are better at relieving the pregnant person from pain. And fourthly, they are also better at matchmaking. Then Socrates starts to describe what he does vis-a-vis -vis midwife. So he first says he, Socrates, attends to man, whereas the midwife attends woman. Well, I think that's because uh, in uh, ancient Athens uh, have a strict segregation of man and woman in the public spaces. And the people Socrates normally interact with uh, are young Athenian citizens. And secondly, he says he attends the soul, whereas the midwife attends the body. Okay, so that also goes with the line of mental pregnancy comparing to the physical one. And thirdly, he says, just like a midwife who can test if someone else is pregnant, Socrates can also test if someone's soul is pregnant. And quote, and the most important thing about my art is the ability to apply all possible tests to the offspring to determine whether the young mind is being delivered of a phantom that is an error or a fertile truth. Okay, so here comes to my first question, Nicola. What does it mean for Socrates for a mind to be pregnant? And what does Socrates do with those minds to test if their idea is phantom or a real baby? Uh, yes, it's it's um, it's a good question to ask what it what it is for a mind to be pregnant, and I think here, I mean, the answer is um, an experience, an answer from experience. I think uh, we need to to understand this this idea of mental pregnancy simply refer to uh, our own experiences that we have, and as as you said, Socrates put it in a specific frame of ancient Athens where it's uh, a culture where uh, older men are um, educating younger men. So it is a, a mainly culture, but I think we can generalize the point here and, and simply says that human beings have this experience of having something in mind and trying to, to express it. First in creative processes, of course, when we try to write something, when we try to paint or when we try to whatever, shoot a movie, but also even, I think, in uh, emotional experiences where um, you want to find the white words to express what you feel, for mm -hmm. instance. And, and you cannot stop talking because you want to find the words that express what you think. So I think it's all, all of these experiences that Socrates is, in a way, um, uh, bringing to the mind here when he speaks of uh, mental pregnancy. And uh, that, that's a strong one. So now the question of what does he do to help people delivering their, their ideas or their thoughts, I think mainly is asking questions. Mm -hmm. Asking questions is the, the basics, uh, the basic of his art. He asks questions and these questions, he thinks helps people to, first of all, even manage to express their ideas because their ideas is not clearly conceived in their mind. So by asking questions, they, they become aware of what they actually believe in. And then when that is done, he's keeping on asking questions to see if this idea is consistent or not. And that's the phase where uh, he is testing if the baby or the brainchild is a phantom or mm -hmm. a real baby. Interesting metaphor. 
And the idea here is I think consistency in the, the belief that you have is what makes the child uh, a real child. Whereas if you are providing inconsistent answer, then the, the child is more like a, a phantom. I see. So by consistency, you mean to the same question, if you, if you have different answers at different time, it doesn't count uh, as, a, as a stable answer or a baby or idea. That could be that could be one case is that you are answering two different things at two different times, but it also could be that you have an idea, uh, and this is the classic way Socrates does. It says, for instance, you think something about uh, uh, you think, for instance, that uh, beauty is a beautiful woman, and then you compare this beautiful woman to the gods, and you realize that she is not that beautiful with comparison to a god. And so you say both that she is beautiful and that she is not beautiful. And that seems to mean that you are not completely consistent about beauty. However, people are not always very happy with the questions Socrates asks, right? And Socrates knows that. And uh, in the dialogue, he says, quote, the common reproach against me is that I'm always asking questions of other people, but never express my own views about anything. And then he explains himself. He says, because there's no wisdom in me, and that is true enough. And the reason of it is that God compels me to attend the trivials of others, but has forbidden me to procreate. So I am not in any sense a wise man. I cannot claim as a child of my own soul any discovery worthy the name of wisdom. Okay, so here... Uh, we have the famous disavowal of knowledge from Socrates. So in this way, he is also like the midwives who delivers but cannot conceive babies themselves. Okay, so now we come to the uh, rather difficult question about this confession of ignorance and what it really means for Socrates. So, so firstly, it's whether Socrates is being ironic when he says he has no wisdom. Because as we might know, Socrates is portrayed in the dialogues as this funny guy who jokes around uh, with his interlocutors. And secondly, maybe more concrete question is, what does Socrates mean by wisdom? Especially when Socrates is considered by the Delphic Oracle as the wisest man in essence, as you might uh, know from another dialogue, the Apology of Socrates. So Nicolette, can you tell us how would you approach these two questions? Yeah, a very, com very complicated question. Um, maybe one way to start is to tell uh, the auditors the story about um, Socrates' uh, um, wisdom. How, how did he learn about his wisdom? So uh, the idea is that a friend of his asked, decided to ask the god, who is the wisest man in Athens? And the god gave an answer and said, it is Socrates. And Socrates was really surprised because he felt that um, he wasn't wise at all. He's not wise at all. So how could the God say that? How could the God say that? And he decided to, to find out by asking questions to his fellow citizens, those who were supposed to know things. And when he asked questions, it's a bit as I told you earlier, um, he uh, realized that they, they do not know what they think they know. So he asked a question about uh, virtues, 
uh, aesthetic qualities. And all these people give cons uh, inconsistent answers. And so Socrates realizes that whereas he, is, he has no knowledge, he at least has the knowledge that he has no knowledge, right? Yeah. He realizes that he's the only one who knows that he doesn't know. And so mm -hmm. that's why the God said that he's the most wise, the wisest. Um, so that's the story. No, how, how can we interpret exactly the, the ironical part of this story? Socrates' irony has been a question for scholars for a very long time. As you might know, Kierkegaard wrote about that, a lot of um, complicated answers. Um, one thing that I could try to say to, to, to people here is I think it is not, I mean, his irony is not simply uh, saying the opposite of what you mean, mm -hmm. which is the classic definition of, uh, of irony, right? You say the opposite of what you mean. I think there is something a little bit deeper in Socrates here, and here I'm following someone like Jonathan Lear. They, they, he thinks that Socrates is trying to um, detect the gap between people's pretense, the way they live their life, and their real aspiration. What does he mean by that? It means that people, for instance, politicians, they live their life as if they were good politicians, as if they could uh, defend the city and could um, promote uh, virtues like justice. They would promote justice. But then when Socrates asks them, what is justice? It, it turns out that they don't know really what they are doing. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they are doing because they are not able to give a consistent answer about justice. And what Socrates is doing then, uh, according to this uh, scholar, is to point to the gap between the way people live their life, what they think they are, and their deeper uh, um, understanding that they, are, they don't really know what they are doing. And that's the irony uh, there where Socrates is able to say, well, but if you don't know what justice is, how can you be a politician? If you don't know what beauty is, how can you be an artist? And that's the deep ironical question that he can ask by pointing to the gap between these ideas that people have about themselves and, uh, and, and then the, the reality that they cannot always defend these ideas. And this is the radical thing about Socrates is that himself is nothing. He, he claims to be nothing himself. And that's one, of, one way to understand his irony. Yeah. Right, so he's ironic about himself as well as others. Yes. He presents this self-irony to others so they can see it. Yes. But then of course, the, the question is whether the, the irony is a means uh, mm -hmm. or it's, it just becomes an end in the sense that Socrates seems kind of able to go beyond his self-irony, even though it does serve the function of pointing out to others there's a gap between what you do and what you actually believe. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. In a way, he, he, it prevents him from literally occupying a definite space. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that's what is really radical about it. And in, in, in one of the other Plato's other dialogue, the symposium, he really he literally says, I think he is nothing. Mm. So he, there is this kind of a hardcore and very unsettling position about the, himself, which he doesn't want to assume any pretense. 
in order to keep this ironical position of spotting the in conflict between the pretense and what we really believe. So yes, yeah, uh, a very radical position, I think, that is sometimes misunderstood. And uh, so, so if, if he's serious about himself not capable of having babies, in a way, what makes him believe that other people could? I mean, I mean, the whole point of the belief in midwifery is to say, you know, uh, they, they, you could have babies, let's just try. But then in my case, I, I couldn't, I know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I think, I think there is something, a little bit of a gamble here uh, that Socrates is making. And that in a way, philosophy, it's the nature of philosophy to be a gamble about the power of the mind to, to reach a, a, a consistent result. And it's a gamble that is not, it's difficult to uh, found in a rational way. So I think there is indeed something of a, of a gamble here. Yeah. But then he gambles with other people's mind. Yes. Hmm. Yes, he does. He does. And as, we, as you said, in the dialogue we are uh, speaking about today, the TI teaches, it turns out that the babies are not real babies. So uh, it, it turns out that, that the delivery fail. But as I said at the beginning uh, of our conversation, in Plato, there is also a value in the process itself. So maybe even in the process of trying, there is already um, something to be gained. Okay, let's, let's keep that uh, question after the uh, intermission. So we will listen to another song, uh, which is called Pitch the Baby. So very fitting for our, uh, our topic today by Tech Two Twins. Please enjoy. Yeah. 
Welcome back. And the song you just listened to is "Pitch the Baby" by、uh, Cacto Twins. And now we're going to move on from、uh, Socrates' own lack of wisdom to his midwifery. And、uh, because he believes that people he talk talks to are different from himself, that is, they have the potential to acquire wisdom. So here comes the quote. In which Socrates says, "But with those who associate with me, it is different. At first, some of them may give the impression of being ignorant and stupid, but as time goes on and our association continues, all whom God permits are seen to make progress. Progress which is amazing both to other people and to themselves. And yet, it is clear that this is not due to anything they have learned from me." It is that they discover within themselves a multitude of beautiful things, which they bring forth into the light. But it is me, with God's help, who deliver them of this off offspring. So, Socrates really want to emphasize that if someone gets anything out of the conversation with him, that something belongs to that person originally, and that thing is not from Socrates. Uh, in the same way that the baby belongs to the the pregnant person and not the person who helps to deliver it. So here we have this idea of progress. What do you think、uh, Socrates has in mind here with、uh, progress? What what is the progress that that one can make accompanied by、uh, Socratic midwifery? Yes,、um, the progress here、um, I think has to do first first of all、uh, with what could be called self knowledge. So a knowledge about yourself, and this knowledge about yourself is first,、um, as I said, with the process of、uh, delivering the baby, you finally realize what you believe, because before before that you weren't clear about what were your beliefs, and with the process of asking question and answering them and.、Uh, Considering new proposals and and discussing with Socrates, you you are you are able to formulate your beliefs. So that's the first aspect of self knowledge. Then, if it turns out that their beliefs, these beliefs, are inconsistent, then you are also aware that you don't know what you thought you know.、Mm -hmm. So it is not only that you are able to formulate your beliefs. But yeah, there you are also able to know when you know something and when you don't know, and also, as I said, more existentially, there is this awareness of the gap between your behavior and what you pretend and the your real beliefs or the other beliefs that you have. So all these aspects, I think, are constitute self knowledge, and it is the this is the progress that can be made. And no, if it turns out that The baby you produce is consistent or resists tests by other people, and I think it would be critical scrutiny in many different ways. Then you could also have a knowledge about something else in the world. But I would say first there is the self knowledge, and then maybe、uh, knowledge about things things in the world. So you think there's a progression from self knowledge to、uh, knowledge of the world? Well, yeah. I mean, it, here it's a little bit maybe.、Uh, Because it, it's unclear how separate these two things really are for、right. Plato. Yeah. yeah. What I meant is that even if it turns out that what you think 
is, is not really consistent and is there a fake baby, at least you gain something about yourself, which is to be aware of your ignorance. So at least there is that which is gained in the, progr in the progress and in the process, even if your attempt does not completely work. At least there is this gain for yourself. Okay, I was going to ask about whether self-ignorance is the only object of self-knowledge. What do you mean by that? That uh, being ignorant about yourself? Because, because mm -hmm. if you actually know something, that something necessarily belongs to the world, mm -hmm. uh, it's no longer the object of your self-knowledge. So mm -hmm. then the only moment when they are separate is when you, are, you know that you are on ignorance. Yes, yes. So Plato has an interesting uh, thing. I mean, his, his idea of ignorance, he says, well, there is factual ignorance or ignorance about the world. But he said the most widespread ignorance mm. is the one about yourself, which is that you think you know, but in fact, you, doesn't, you, do, you don't know. Mm. And in, for him, it's the main form of ignorance. And mm. it's the one which creates the, the more um, hazard in the city because if the city is, is ruled by people who are, who are not ready to admit their ignorance, that's a problem. And, and indeed, so therefore, the main progress that uh, the midwifery enables you to do is to cure self-ignorance. You mean cure the ignorance of your ignorance? Yes, Yeah. exactly. Okay. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. Cure the ignorance of your ignorance. Right. Okay. And, and be ready to admit that you are ignorant, actually. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. So that's great. So, and let's say if there is a baby and the baby does belong to the pregnant person, what credit should we give to the midwife? Because I think in this dialogue, Socrates is already anticipating the accusations that other people give to him in the sense that people don't recognize, people don't really understand what is he doing by asking questions in the marketplace, in essence, for example. Here comes the quote when he says, in the many cases where people who did not realize this fact of him being the midwife took all the credit to themselves and thought that I was no good. They have then proceeded to leave me sooner than they should, either of their own accord or through the influence of others. And after they have gone away from me, they have resorted to harmful company with the result that what remained within them has miscarried, while they have neglected the children I helped them to bring forth. Finally, they have been set down for ignorant fools, both by themselves and by everybody else. Okay. so. Socrates thinks it's, it is necessary for intellectual pregnancy to deliver the baby with the help of the midwife. That is, nobody can do it by themselves, or even worse, by the bad company. And uh, in the bad company, the brainchild would be miscarried. All people might not have been pregnant uh, at all. And uh, if that's the case, Socrates says he also has the skill to help them to be pregnant, namely to make them match with the right people. And here's another passage. He says, I come across people who do not seem to me somehow to be pregnant. Then I realize that they have no need of me. 
And with the best will in the world, I undertake the business of matchmaking. And I think I'm good enough, God willing, at guessing with whom they might profitably keep company. Okay, so now we see uh, again, Socrates uh, midwifery also entails the ability of matchmaking, uh, which is analogous to the uh, midwife's ability to uh, uh, matchmaking. So I think this passage is telling. So it shows that the relationship between oneself and one's idea is somehow conditioned by one's associates or one's friends. So my next question is, is Socrates implying that no one thinks alone? We always think along with our associates and depending on their quality, the quality of our idea would differ. And then to be a good interlocutor is to be a good midwife and bad company for Socrates means people who neither appreciate uh, midwifery nor practice it. Then he builds the necessity of midwifery in every possible scenario of true companionship. Do you think Socrates is, is implying that? Uh, yes and no, Dashan. Um, I, think, I think there is a weird feature of this text that needs to be uh, uh, talked about. It, it is that there is a weird reversal of causality here. What do I mean by that is that it seems that the interlocutor is pregnant before starting the conversation with Socrates. Hmm. Whereas we would, we would have expected that the pregnancy would be the metaphorical result of a conversation. But in this case, it looks like the, the person is mentally pregnant before encountering Socrates. Uh, so that would mean in fact that the, the the source of creativity is internal to someone and is not uh, necessarily condition. There is not a condition that someone else is there to become pregnant. This is not completely surprising because Plato defines the thinking as the dialogue of the soul with itself. So you can see here that the presence of the other is not completely necessary for the thinking process to happen. However, that being said, it is clear also that the others play a part in Plato. First of all, because they, are, they can trigger the, the labor of the pregnancy. As you, as you know, Socrates was in love with the beauty of young people. So because the, it's not necessarily because the other people uh, were good companion, but because they were beautiful and exciting that he, is, is, he starts to uh, talk with them and ask questions to them. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the other is not, not, not really necessary, but more like the occasion for the mind to, 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 to blossom. Okay. Um... Then how do we understand the relation between the matchmaking and the midwifery? I think he maintains the conceptual difference, right? So there is a process before midwifery, which is matchmaking. And the matchmaking is about oneself and others. I thought, and the question is whether the person would have the idea before the matchmaking, but then not yet delivered and then needs the midwife or 
the matchmaking itself is when the ideas are conceived. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I think the text is, is, is saying pretty clearly that uh, pregnancy is something which is there. Mm. Is there in some, some people, is, it is there. Um, the question is why, and that's a, another story. And say a few words about that, where, where creativity is coming from for Plato, it's mainly, he says, madness, but uh, that's not, that's not but, but, but I think you were completely right that in the text that we are reading, the other is necessary to, to ask the right question to help you to come with something. So in that respect, uh, the other is necessary less to the con conception than to the delivery of the baby. That's, that's where the other, I think, has the, 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 the role to help you to, to express and to, to deliver the mental uh, uh, ideas that, she, that, that you have. Rather than rather than creating them, in, in other words, there is no real impregnation from from the other. Right. Okay. So then let's move on to why so Socrates want to make this digression of himself being a midwife in this in the context of talking to Theaetetus. So we we now come to the end of the passage. And Socrates explains to Theaetetus why he makes this digression. He says, the reason was that I have the suspicion that you, as you think yourself, are pregnant and in labor. So I want you to come to me as to someone who is both the son of a midwife and himself skilled in the art and try to answer the questions I shall ask you as well as you can. And when I examine what you say, I may perhaps think it is a phantom and not choose and proceed to take it quietly from you and abandon it. Now, if this happens, you mustn't get savage with me like a mother over her firstborn child. Do you know people have often before now got into such a state with me as to be literally ready to bite when I take away some nonsense or some or other from them. They never believe that I am doing this in all goodwill. They are so far from realizing that no God can wish evil to man and that even I don't do this kind of thing out of malice, but because it is not permitted to me to accept a lie and put away truth. Okay, so Socrates seems to offer his self-identification with midwifery so to encourage Theaetetus to deliver his baby, even though the, the baby may not be alive, at least after it is delivered, we know what it is and then we can abandon it. And Socrates asks Theaetetus to not be angry with him if that happens. For he, Socrates, has no ill will towards the baby, nor the pregnant person. But I'm wondering why Socrates thinks that by offering the image of the midwife, would encourage the interlocutor to speak. What is it about midwifery that makes Socrates trustworthy and his friendship worthwhile? Yeah, I think it's a great follow-up question to the conversation that we had before. Is what, as, as you say, what what's the advantage of a, of, a, of midwife uh, that would um, help TIT to speak? Um, I think here. 
it, it's very important that the midwife is supposed to be barren. She used to have children. Huh? It's not that she was always uh, sterile, but she used to have children. But no, she, she cannot have any more. And she helps the other to deliver their babies. Similarly to Socrates, I mean, it's unclear if he really had children himself in the first place, but at the moment he is barren, he is empty. And I think it guarantees something. It, it guarantees that Socrates is not doing the same thing as the sophists were doing, which is literally to impregnate the other mind with their supposed knowledge. Socrates does something different. It is that he assumes that you are pregnant and then asks the questions to make you deliver the, the child. And it's, as you, as you may see, two different models of education. One is impregnating the other soul and the other one is helping your own soul to uh, deliver. And I think this is why TI teachers could be more trustworthy towards Socrates because he has no agenda to push, no doctrine to inoculate, you see? And uh, the fact that he is barren, that, it is, that he is himself barren, uh, is a totally different model of education. Does that mean there's always this unequal relation then? In a sense, there's no, it's, it's not exactly a reciprocity when two person each have some half-baked ideas and then try to examine each other in, in order to come up with a better idea together. It's still this kind of doctor and patient relation that Socrates uh, analogy seems to imply. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, so in, in a way it is different from the sophist one for sure. Uh, but then uh, here Socrates still claims uh, some kind of domin domination uh, over the other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, wh wh where is the domination, you think? Because the, the domination is, is, let's focus on your uh, baby. Let's focus on Theatita's baby. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'll offer uh, questions and you, you try to answer it to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so maybe, maybe there won't be domination if Theatita's also agrees in the end. Mm -hmm. um, but then, but then, if we compare that to the to the sophist, uh, let's say for whatever sophist says, the person in the end still agrees. Why is there? Why why is the sophistry bad? Uh, just because the ideas come from them, whereas why is uh, uh, Socratic uh, method good? Simply because the first idea doesn't come from them. Yes. No, I see, I see. I mean, I think in what you mean is in the two, in the two situations, there is a situation of asymmetry mm. uh, uh, rather than reciprocal, reciprocal exchange. Um, yes, uh, that could be a, a, um, a valid point to make. And I think, uh, as I said, there is a part of Plato's thinking which is deeply, um, which doesn't see relationship with other necessarily as reciprocal. Um, uh, as for instance, uh, Aristotle would, would see. Uh, however, um, it is to be noted that Socrates, um, not Socrates, but the stranger, which is a um, interlocutor of another dialogue, says that the people who do that, so the Socratic method of asking questions, already did that on themselves. 
Mm. There are some, some passages which implies that you can do that only if you have been self-analyzed somehow, or uh, that you apply the method to itself, which in a way uh, uh, decrease a little bit the asymmetrical situation there, uh, because it, it is a little bit implied that Socrates has practiced this, this method on himself. But that's true that beneath or besides the two models, impregnation and midwifery, there is a model that you suggest, which is more uh, collaboration and exchange, which seems not always clear that what it, uh, Plato has in mind. Yeah. I was wondering to what extent um, is Socrates, what well, is, is this dialogue set in the back, background of uh, apology? Because there, there, there are things Socrates is saying here clearly uh, points to the charges that uh, had, uh, they have against him, namely impiety, so not believing in gods or believing in different gods, and therefore corrupting the young. And Socrates here seems to say that no, my midwifery is not corrupting them, is to help them uh, to make progress. And I'm doing that because I was ordered by God to be lack of wisdom. And my lack of wisdom is the precondition for my ability to perform this midwifery. So I actually believe in God. I am pious towards that God. And then... I'm helping others despite my own ignorance. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's 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 correct that here we have a kind of a correction of uh, because Socrates, as you as you mentioned, was uh, uh, accused of being uh, introduced. I mean, was it introducing uh, foreign de deities in the city or new new so gods? Anything, yeah, it was it, it was said to be not pious enough, and so here he kind of. I think, yeah, as, as you said, he's showing a right way to be pious, which is not necessarily uh, following the rules of uh, the, the religion and the, the rituals, but more, more radically serving the God, having this role of reminding to the, his fellow citizens their ignorance. Mm -hmm. and, and here, I think it's interesting, a friend of mine was, uh, made me notice that recently, that the word uh, therapeia in Greek, which means uh, to cure, is also as the original meaning of being a servant. So mm. by being a servant to the God, he's curing, in a way, the soul of his uh, fellow citizens. So um, this is the two meaning of the word therapeia. So yeah, I think indeed there is a correction of, of showing, him showing uh, that his practice of midwifery is not uh, introducing other deities, is not corrupting the young, but on the, on the contrary, it is the real service to the God by uh, uh, making people uh, knowing themselves and aware of themselves. He right. says, no, I'm the only one who understand what the God wants. And what the God wants is this uh, uh, process of midwifery to my fellow citizens, midwifery to my fellow citizens. Right. Okay, great. I think um, I'll ask the last question and, and uh, as a way of conclusion, I want to ask about the relation between Socrates, the character and mm -hmm. the project of philosophy that Plato sees it. So as I said in the introduction, Plato writes philosophy in dialogue via the character of Socrates. So it seems then Socrates uh, is written 
as philosophy personified or exemplary of a philosophical life. So uh, Nicola, do you think then this imagery of midwifery is also relevant to our understanding of what philosophy is and what it does uh, in the eyes of Plato? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I, I think here that I'm, I'm thinking of uh, what a, a scholar, a Plato scholar said. Uh, she said, Plato wrote a lot of myth, mm. uh, the cave, allegory of the cave, myth of Ur, Ernst and so on. But maybe the only myth that is still talking to us today is Socrates' life, mm -hmm. uh, talking us directly, as indeed, perhaps, as you said, a model or um, an inspiration for those who are doing philosophy. So no, I cannot answer for everyone who is doing philosophy, of course, but I can answer for me when I'm doing philosophy, I'm often reminded of Socrates' voice to tell me to not go too fast. A little bit like Socrates when he, when he hears his diamond and says, well, 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 don't, don't jump to a conclusion. This is often something that helps me when I'm, I'm doing philosophy myself is that, am I, do I really know what I'm writing right now or what I'm saying right now? Mm -hmm. what's, what's exactly, what exactly do I mean when I say that? Um, uh, um, and am I, am I not lying to myself, self-deceiving myself in knowing something I don't know? Uh, and to some extent, I think this is something that a lot of philosophers do when, when they write and, and, and think. And it's, it's, uh, in that respect, I think, yeah, Socrates is still among uh, philosophers these days. I mean, other philosophers might say something different, but that's the impression that I have. And of course, it applies to everybody, really, right? So, so, yeah. so this is not nothing really specific to philosophy. Uh, so, yes, exactly. And then, so can we say, in a way, we embody both Socrates, but also his interlocutor? Mm -hmm. Because in a way, we, 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 as, as you said, we are doing this to ourselves as well as to others, right? So they are part of us who does have some opinions, uh, some knowledge. And then the part of us, it is being Socratic and say, okay, no, let's deliver this by writing, by, uh, I don't know, any, any kind of activity that you think fit. And that, that model applies to interpersonal relations to others as well. Yeah, and that, that's why I think that the deep, the deep significance, the, the question you asked me first, which is why Plato wrote dialogues, I think he wrote dialogues for this specific reason to uh, enable us to internalize the dialogue between Socrates and others to the different parts of ourselves. So yeah, indeed, I think this is, this is the final goal of this metaphor of midwifery and these dialogues is to internalize the Socratic dialogue in yourself whether you are a philosopher or not in a way. Okay, that's, I think that's a good, uh, good way to end uh, our interview. Well, thank you, Nicola, for talking to me about this issue. It was very interesting. Thank you, Dashan. Very nice okay, moment. and uh, well, let's play the last song you choose. It's called Bloody Shadows in a Distance by Lina Platonos. Enjoy.
τις εξιστορίσεις τη ζωή σου συχνά ανταποκρίνομαι με ρίγη στη ραχοκοκαλιά τυλίγομαι σε κουβέρτα πορτοκαλιά γίνομαι σιρφετός τυφλός που καταλήγει στην άκρη του τιβανιού του γκρεμού ανήκανο στα δάκρυα και στην ποιήση ζητώντας άλλου είδους όραση καθώς είμαστε πια μεγάλα παιδιά που χρειάζονται πολλά δάχτυλα για να μετρήσουν τον πίσω χρόνο να βυθίσουν μακριά δάχτυλα για να αγγίξουν τον αρχικό πόνο ώστε να μπορούν να διατηρήσουν Το λέω ξανά Στις εξιστορίσεις Της ζωής σου Συχνά Ανταποκρίνομαι Με ρίγη Στη ραχοκοκαλιά Τυλίγομαι Σε κουβέρτα Πορτοκαλιά Γίνομαι Συρφετός τυφλός που καταλήγει Στην άκρη Του τιβανιού Ανίκανος στα δάκρυα και στην πίεση Ζητώντας άλλου είδους όραση Τότε μόνο ξαφνικά και ορμητικά έρχεται η επιβίωση